BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome to Copfather. I am Craig Bermel, along with Danis Coromius. And today, a uh, real legend with the New York City Police Department, Randy Jurgensen. This man's done so much his career as a police officer and after. Randy was involved in the situation in 1972, which he wrote a book about it. And we want to get into it. The book's called Circle of Six. We're going to talk to Randy about it. But first of all, my friend, how you doing? I'm doing fine. We're getting through this pandemic one day at a time. Yeah, we're hunkered down, but we're okay. Uh, I don't think any of us saw this coming, but I think we will. There is a light at the end of the tunnel for all of us. But listen, Randy, we wanted to talk to you about Circle of Six, the book you wrote about an incident where a police officer was murdered in New York City, 1972. Maybe you could give us a background on what happened, what your involvement was, and uh, where it led to. Well, one thing I want to bring up was the, uh, the French Connection movie, which would go on to win five Academy Awards. This year is 50 years old from when they released it. Uh, this coming October, why I bring that up, because Circle of Six, that case that I wrote, it happened on April 14th, and that was in the middle of the making of the French Connection. We made the French Connection in 1971. It was released in October of 1971. I took all the lost time I could get. Uh, I took my vacation. When we would shoot at night, I was able to change my chart. I would work during the, the day to be free at night and vice versa. So I pretty near was on the, the set of the French Connection the whole time. And you were consulting on that movie, right? We were doing a lot more than that. What we really did, I, I led this part of it. We were turning uh, Roy Scheider and Gene Hackman and certainly the director, Billy Freakin, and the producer, Phil D'Antoni. We were turning them into narcotic detectives. They wanted R-E-A-L. So I actually took them out in the street. I made narcotic arrests. There were shooting galleries at the time. And I don't mean gun shooting galleries, heroin shooting. So break the door down, go on in there. Cheap guns, uh, blah, blah, blah. And they stayed with us through the whole process. I, I want to bring up something about that. So the process meant that we brought them back into the precinct and we fingerprinted them and we photographed them and ran their records to see who was wanted. A lot of them were wanted. And of course, what it was also doing, it was putting this pandemic back then, heroin, we were putting it on record. At one point, these numbers sound pale today, but remember, I'm talking 1971. In 1971, there were 280,000 registered heroin users committing a crime 
every day to feed their habit in the city of New York. Uh, Some of them turned themselves in. uh, Others were arrested. So in the midst of all of that going on, we're making the French Connection movie. Now, the French Connection movie gets nominated for seven awards, top to bottom, the biggest ones, director, producer, uh, actor, all of writer, and it wins in April of 1972. While that is winning the award, the Academy Awards, I'm in the hospital from April 14, 1972, with four other cops and, of course, one shot with his own gun. So now with the 50th anniversary here of the French Connection, there's been a flood of memories, uh, you know, that I've gone through that I think about. So to get to April of 14, 1972, I had a special unit. The chief of detectives gave me five cops and we were, they don't like this word, they don't use it anymore, but we were hunting cop killers. We were hunting cop killers. One of them was Joanne Chesimard, who today is in Cuba. Another one was uh, Twyman Myers, who I had locked up. He was number one on the FBI most wanted list. Uh, we would catch up. We would catch up to him in the street. I mean, there was a shootout. I won. He lost. And they were number one on the FBI's most wanted list. So in 1971, two police officers by the name of Piagentini and Jones, they were actually set up. They were actually set up. And I guess there's different terms of being killed. You know, oh, well, hit and run, uh, murdered, so forth. These two police officers were executed. They were executed. Their weapons were taken as souvenirs. I was working that night and I went to the hospital and Piagentini was downstairs in the morgue and Jones was upstairs. They were still trying to save him. And one of the hardest things that, you know, obviously getting shot and killed, but to have to undress those police officers, which I did, and go to their locker and take out their personal stuff. And, you know, and at two o'clock in the morning, which was like maybe four hours after it happened, you know, you're upstairs in the hospital and you're in a room there and you look out the room and coming down the hall is his wife. And you got to talk to her. And he had three kids, three kids. And she came, Mrs. Piagentini came with a priest. He was accompanied by a priest. They had resided in Staten Island. The priest was out in Staten Island. They came in extremely hard. And of course, there's no way what what happened to Piagentini and Jones, are they going to be able to view the body? Absolutely not. So in 1972, they did the same thing to Foster and Laurie. These guys were Vietnam vets. One of them had a bronze star. And of course, They were black and white, the same as Piagentini and Jones. And all the cops that were going to get killed after that, they were Irish, Italian, black, white. We even had a Spanish one. So it became very, very clear that they were killing cops. They were killing that blue, that magnificent blue uniform. That's what they were doing. 
So it didn't make a difference what color you are or what nationality you are. If you were a cop, they were killing you. And Randy, who was behind it? Who was Black Liberation Army. The Black Liberation Army. They operated in cells. Took years to to crack this and and to catch them. But they operated in cells. There was a motion picture, and it was called the Battle of Algiers. And Algiers was ruled by France. And they had their soldiers in there. And the continued eruption and the revolution or whatever it was was going on in Algiers, it, it wasn't working. So the French brought in French paratroopers, very elite group, and that didn't work out. And then somebody figured out, listen, let's use the French police. Let's use the French police. So they bolstered up the police department and they were to go out and they were to quell or to stop and do whatever they were supposed to do. And they did. And they did a pretty good job. And what the revolutionaries or whatever you want to call them, what they did, and this is all depicted in this movie, they went after the police families. The police department quit and Algiers fell. So it shows you, that picture shows you, if you can bring down the police department, that is really the last line of defense, you know, in any city, if yeah. you want to talk about it. And, and, and things, things like this don't happen in villages and so forth. So but in, in, in any major cities and stuff like that, you cripple, you cripple the police department. And I want to jump ahead just a little bit, and I'll, I'll get into this. And that's exactly what's happening today. That's exactly what's happening today. But to go back to, go back to 1972. Now, Cardillo, Patrolman Philip Cardillo, and his partner, Vito Navarro, were in a radio car. And they got a call that there was a cop in trouble and he was located later would learn was in mosque number seven. And that was minister Louis Farrakhan's mosque. Now, prior to that, I worked in that precinct probably a good 10 years and I never had a problem in the mosque or, or, or with them. There was one not even worth talking about. But they were a militant mosque. They had a group in there. They were called the FOI, the Fruit of Islam. And they were, they were headed up by this man called Captain Josephs. Yusuf Shaw was his name. I knew him from, from the mosque, very cordial, back and forth, blah, blah, blah. So the difference between Piagentini and Jones, Foster and Laurie, Curry and Benetti, and the Cardillo case was they answered a phony call. And when they went inside, the second radio car came in from the sister precinct. And that was uh, Negron and Padilla, two Spanish cops, because the sister precinct was predominantly Spanish. It was Spanish. So they came in and they were the second cops in there. Now, Everybody says this was exactly set up because they closed the door behind them. It, it took me a year or two to put the case together. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit to put the case together. 
But the man who closed the door was did not close the door. And believe me, the questioning that I questioned him on a very high bridge over a highway in New York City where I bought tomatoes and watermelons and, uh, and I dropped them off. And when they splashed on the ground down below, I would ask him a question. I knew I was getting the truth. So he said to me, he did not close and lock the doors to lock the people in. He closed and locked the doors to keep the other cops out that were trying to come in. The cops that were also trying to get in. That's why he locked the doors. Now, the people that participated in the beating, and it was some beating to those four cops. It was some beating. Now, the people that did that, they heard the commotion. They didn't know what was going on. And they ran from different parts of the mosque. And when they did that, they saw the fighting and pushing and shoving, and it escalated. And during that time, one of them took the cop's gun from the holster, from the cop's holster. Now, again, the investigation showed that the holster was ripped. So the cop, so the guy actually was pulling the gun out, ripped the holster, because there is a bit of a safety on those holsters, and ripped it out. And as he did that, and he brought the gun up, he shot and he killed the cop. So Cardillo was the victim of uh, a phony call and it went south to believe, and this is no excuse, none whatsoever, but to believe that this was a setup to where these cops would come in and you'd have to disarm them, take their guns and shoot one of them with the guns. I truly believe the last thing that that mosque needed was a cop to be shot or killed in there. What, what I believe was that that phony call would draw the cops in there. And of course, there was children in there. They went to school in there and the cops would come in there. And they could see the cops coming in with bats and sticks. And this is what gets going. Yeah. And, and they're, you know, mm. sending Muslims to the hospital and there's kids in there and, and so forth and so on. That's speculation on my part. I, I, I have to believe that that's what it was due to this phony call. Now, it takes a lot of years, a lot of years for this to come out. And even when I wrote the book, I started to sus suspect this. The FBI at the time were in big trouble with COINTEL. COINTEL was collapsing all around them. The Ellsberg Papers, it, it, the FBI, that was it. They came up with, they came up with a new group, and it was called Nukil. And we have come across, and this is years and years later, we've come across tapes from the president of the United States, who was Nixon, talking to the head of the FBI and the attorney general. And Nixon is saying that they cannot continue to kill cops, Piagentini and Jones. He really 
messed up the Piagentini name. This is on tape. And so he's saying to him, Edgar, that, that was Hoover. He's calling him Edgar. He says, now we have to do something to stop about, stop this. And Edgar is going back and he's talking to him and he's saying, yes, this is what we're going to do and so forth and so on. And I, I didn't know that the, the name of the group at that time was called New Kill. And the FBI and one of the things that they were going to do, and the attorney general was in on this. And Nixon says, and you know, Edgar, this cannot, I have this tape. This cannot be uh, traced back to the White House. Oh, no, sir. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Part of New Kill's operation was the following. They would spread rumors out in the street that the Panthers were going to go to war with the Muslims. Uh, they would have they would put things out in the street that the only way to identify them and listen to this carefully, make phone calls to cause confusion. Wow. Make wow. phone calls to cause confusion. So now. That was New Kill's operation. I've spoken to New Kill FBI agents, and that was done. Uh, they would call Newton. Uh, they would call uh, any one of them and say, you know what we heard? And, and, and don't forget, the FBI has confidential informants. There were five of them in the mosque on that day. Yeah. Of course, we know nothing. we know nothing like this. We don't know this at all. So do we suspect that the FBI made that phone call? Yes. Very, very strong that, you know, one of the FBI's confidential informants made that call from inside the mosque. So now I get the call and I'm exactly sitting with my crew and I'm sitting with decent information on Twyman Myers at 125th Street in the Amsterdam Avenue. Why I give that address is because I was born at home two blocks from mm. there. And now I'm sitting for I'm sitting on the FBI's most wanted cop killer in the city of New wow. York, Twyman Myers. So the call comes over and it's a 1013. That's a cop in trouble. Now, what they did was. They would call that call to call you off that you would go. So I was reluctant. I was reluctant to go in, in, in the beginning. So what I said was I would go and leave half the guys there. And then I realized this is Twyman Myers. And there's no way I was just going to leave two or three guys to deal with Twyman Myers. They had machine pistols and there, no way I was going to do that. So before I could even say, you know, we're all going. The second call came over, shots fired. Now, that was it. So I went. When I got there, when I got there, these things, these things are important. When I got there, you have to remember, the only thing different about this is that it was the mosque. It was, it was the mosque. And I, I knew there was going to be a problem right away. But this wasn't our first, let's say, dance of reporting to a cop shot. Don't forget, we did it with Piagentini and Jones. We did it with Curry and Benetti. We, uh, we, we responded to those scenes. So here we're responding to, 
to something that's not exactly brand new. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. This is not the first time that we're going uh, on a cop shot. So when I get, when I get there, they took the cop, Phil Cardillo, they took him out and he was on his way to the hospital. And the, and the rest of the cops, uh, the other three or four, were the same thing, the, the, the same thing. So first I saw the commanding officer there. And I, I'll never forget this. He says, is this yours? Are you catching? No. I said, no, it's, it's not my case. Whoever Whoever's up in the precinct is going to be his case, whoever it was. So I, I went in. And the first thing that I saw was any detective will do the same thing that I did. I've, I've been commended for doing this. Any detective uh, would do this. The first thing I did was I went in. And this is the scene of where it happened. I saw the blood on the floor. I saw, you know, the blood at the side of the wall. I saw the broken windows where the cops broke the windows and fired shots in. I saw the bullet holes up in the wall. And I was in it virtually in an empty room. All the action was now taking place downstairs. So I went downstairs and I saw and I know these cops. Uh, these are cops from the precinct that I work in. And there was a sergeant down there and they had guys lined up against the wall. Now, none of the cops, of course, the guys lined up against the wall. They're not going to talk. And none of the cops, they don't know. They don't know if there was one cop shot, two cop shots. They don't know missing guns. There's no information for a detective down there at the time. The only information that's going to come it's going to come from the guys that were in the hallway. And where are they now? They're over in the hospital. So I came back out. And as I came back out, the uniform force was surrounding the mosque. Every six feet, there was a cop there smoking this, that, cursing. And the cops surrounded the mosque. Nobody in, nobody out. So I ran and I had, I had my, my, my crew. And I told them, stay there, stay there. I went to the hospital alone. So, and the streets, you know what I mean when I said it began to cook. The streets began to cook. The cars were being rocked, small little, small little fires, nothing to speak about, bottles being thrown, you know, literally destroying their own neighborhood, destroying their own streets. So I went into the hospital and it was like a triage. I, you know, I'm not telling war stories, but I could have been back in Korea. Uh, I, I, I went, all these guys were wounded. So the first cop that I saw, he was convulsing and they were trying to hold his leg down. I would learn it was his gun. That was Victor Padilla. It was his gun that was missing. And I'll tell you how that came about. So uh, the second cop I went into, he was hysterical and he had his gun out. And he was in there and, you know, and people were saying to me, I said, I'll take care of it. So I went in there, calmed them down, calmed them down. I didn't know them, the two Spanish cops from the other. I didn't know them. And I said, you know, holster your gun, take your gun down. And it was almost like, oh, oh OK, OK. And he put his gun back in his holster and he, he sat down. I went into the third one and that's where I saw uh, Vito Navarra. Now, Vito Navarra. I knew him and I knew uh, uh, Cardillo and Vito Navarra was bleeding 
I'm telling you, he's bleeding from the mouth. I thought that we saw blood coming out of one eye. He was bleeding out of the ear, you know, and he was just sitting right there. He was he was in shock. He was basically in shock. I would later learn that there, there was a bad uh, fracture in his ankle and his ribs were so badly bruised, he couldn't take a deep breath. And the same thing with the other two that, that I passed. Yep. So I said to Vito, I said, Vito, you got to come back with me. And it was a nurse in there. And she says, he's not going anywhere. So I took a towel and I soaked the towel, wrung it out as best I could. And I wrapped it around his face, Dennis. I wrapped it around and I said, let's go. You, you can identify these people. And he said, yes. And so we went out. Now, here's, here's my first encounter. When I went out there, already, there was the police commissioner and the mayor. Who was the mayor? Lindsay. 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 Sorry, Lindsay. Mayor Lindsay. And Police Commissioner Murphy. Now, in 1968, this is real short, 1968, I captured, uh, after a small shootout, I captured uh, two mob guys. They killed a cop. They, they killed a cop. It, it was in a scuffle, blah, blah, blah. What's the difference? They killed a cop. His name was Vareka. They killed him in 1968. And I would go to trial in 1971. They had the electric chair then, but the federal government struck it down. Now, the reason I'm telling you all of this was by 1971, I had completely lost faith in the police commissioner after Piagentini and Jones were going on instead of investigation, they were investigating them. Did they do something that warranted this and stuff? I'm not exaggerating. So I, I just fell out with them. So I was to get a medal. I was to get a medal, combat cross, whatever, whatever it was for that shooting. And the medal was going to be given to me by, and it's in the book. It was going to be given to me by the police commissioner and the mayor. I refused. I wouldn't take the medal from them. And every medal is represented by an organization. And the organization called me up and they said, you know, the medal stands for this. It stands for that. And, you know, to refuse the medal, you know, I wasn't refusing the medal. but So I said, okay, I would take it. So I got my sergeant, who was black. I got my sergeant from my unit. And I said, will you give me the medal? And he said, gladly. And so I went there and I took the medal. Now, remember, I didn't take the medal from the mayor and the police commissioner. Now I'm walking out of the hospital with Vito Navarro, right? And the police commissioner sees me and he says, Jurgensen. Hey, I got this guy bleeding, Jurgensen. So I go over to him. He's standing alongside of the mayor. I always have to say this. Uh, I stand about 6'1". And the mayor was taller than me. I was I was so surprised at the height of the uh, of the mayor. So when, when I got over there, the he says to me, he says, uh, we, we have 116th Street. It's basically under control now. He's talking. I'm not talking. And the mayor is like looking over at some other people or whatever he's doing. But they're standing side by side. And so I said to the police commissioner, I said, well, they're still calling 1013s. I said, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that there's a gun missing. And I went along like that. And I am telling you the truth. The police commissioner turned to me and said, there's no riot there. I never said riot. 
and the mayor turned and looked at me and he he was going to say something and the police commissioner turned back to him and said no there's no right there's no riot over there we we have this under control and i supposedly said because i heard about it later on i supposedly said whatever and i walked away and i took the, the the top and i i went back now when i went back to the mosque this is it the mosque was surrounded by muslims all the all muslims not cops muslims the guys were still in the basement by then the chief of detectives had arrived and i was sort of his fair haired boy and he was downstairs in the basement and so now i go in with vito and i get to the door and the two muslims tell me no no you 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 can't go in you you can't go in now i got a shotgun and and i said well i'm not going in but he's going in are we going to argue about that and they said no and they let vito in there now vito went in there now what i saw when vito went in there i saw a guy and this is the guy that not only locked the door but this is the guy that took padilla's gun he's the one that took the gun and he's mopping up mopping up the crime scene mopping up the blood that's what he's doing wow from there is where the police department fumbled the ball not the cops absolutely not they said you couldn't go in no no superior officer nobody said yeah they're going in this is a crime scene so forth and so on now the streets were getting so bad the streets were getting so bad that oh by the way when i saw him mopping up the crime scene photo unit had gotten in there photo had come in and when he was coming out photo bent over and picked up the bullet that was key that turned out to be cardillo's bullet that was on the ground so we had we got that so now the streets are bad and one of the inspectors get up there and they get on the emergency service truck and over the bullhorn and they said all white cops leave the area all white cops leave the area all cops that are not in this command report back to your command and the streets there they're doing whatever they're doing that left 12 cops well i left i went up to the corner i went up there and on my radio i get a call by name randy jurgens jurgens come come back here it was the inspector that was the command inspector i got back there and he says look you and your team you got to take the roofs look what they're doing they're going to kill somebody they're dismantling the the chimneys the bricks they're coming down so we go up and we take the stairs and we took it like in the military operation when i took the first ending i left the cop with two guns pointed down so that nobody could follow us up and when i got to the second landing i took the cop that was on the first landing pulled him back up there and left him to guard the second landing so that nobody could get up there and we got up there we went up on the roof now as soon as we went on the roof these were kids as soon as we went up on the roof they ran like hell and once they ran and the bricks stopped and i looked over on the side that's when the street really got swollen with people they felt that they could come out there and do it and guess what one of the cars that they turned over and set on fire was mine my 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 <laughs> of course car. of course so, <laughs> so um now and i'm pretty much going to end this now 
because I'll tell you what goes on through the investigation. But now up comes an inspector. He comes up there with a cop and he comes up with uh, two men that are in Dashiki. And one of them is five uh, X something. I can't think right. His name escapes me. And the cop comes over to us. We're standing on we're standing on one side of the roof. Now try to picture this. I'll try to paint it. Now you see me. You see me. Now make believe that I am the inspector. And behind him now is coming 10 people, 12 people, 20 people, and they're all spreading out behind the inspector. None of them are cops. And they're all spreading out behind there. And definitely, we're definitely now badly outnumbered up on the roof. And he sends the cop over to us. There's a good distance between us and him. And he sends the cop over. And the cop says, uh, you know, we have to search you uh, f f for weapons. And I said to the cop, what? We're going to search you for the weapons. Now, I had legally signed out the shotgun. Yes, I altered the shotgun. I sawed it down so it would fit under my coat. I had a strap on it so it hung on my shoulder. And we had a semi-automatic carbine from the police department. We were at war with the Black Liberation Army. That was the weapons that we needed. There was no such thing as a Glock. There were no vests. There were no radios. You were out there on your own against these guys. So when it came time for him to come over to me and I had the shotgun, I took the shotgun and I broke it down. But I kept the part that had the nomenclature, that had the numbers on it. I kept it and I gave them the, 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 the shotgun and we turned over the carbine. We turned it over. And once that happened, he turned with the cop, turned and walked downstairs. And now we're up on the roof. But I'd say 20, 25 people. The helicopter is wheeling over there. I swear to God, I thought it was back in Korea. The, 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 the helicopter is waving over there. I waved the helicopter off. The dust was flying up. And so now we got to leave. Now we got to leave. So I led, I led going down the stairs. We made it to the first landing. And then after that, somebody threw a can and the can hit one of them or whatever it was. And all hell broke loose. During that time, I suffered uh, uh, a human bite. Uh, there, there were bloody noses with the guys and everything. But we managed to get out into the street. And when I got out into the street, they took a rope. They had a rope and they were trying to put the rope around one of the cops one, one of the cops, you know, were they going to hang him? Where were they, they were going to do? Don't forget, there are no cops in the street. We're on our own. Mm -hmm. There was only 12, blocks, 12 black cops, and they were standing down on the corner while this was going on. The bus was rocking. So we made it into a radio car, and there was like three of us got into the radio car, and an ash can came right through the windshield of the radio car. It sounded like an explosion, you know? So we got out of the radio car, and as I'm going past the radio car, the guy got on the roof and that's when he let the, the brick go. And that was really the end of it for me. They were trying to stop the police from going in. You're literally, you could have been killed by that brick. The full picture of that is the guy standing on the roof of a car and it, it's in a brown bag and it's, it's in the picture. You can see the, when the brick, when the brick, but he did it from the, from the top of the car. Now, 
I tried to walk into St. Luke's because my father, my father worked there and I didn't want him to see me coming in on a gurney and stuff like I saw him earlier when I took Vito, when I took Vito out of there. I, I, I couldn't. I, I went down on the floor and sure enough, they put me on a gurney and I spent uh, I spent four days. I spent four days in the hospital with a concussion, a human bite, some some scratches, uh, some bruised ribs, but nothing like the four cops that were in there. And I'm semi-conscious and so forth and so on. And I'm in the hospital and I get visited by 12 black detectives. I, I, I worked with at least three or four of them, but they all came into the room. So help me to God, you know, they're chasing the nurse around a little bit, you know, hey, honey, how you doing? They're smoking cigars. And one of them comes over to me. I'm not going to call his name. And he says, you see this picture? You see this man here? And that's the guy that he says, we're going to take care of that little brother. We're going to take care of that. And I guarantee you, they did. Wow. <laughs> Those wow. are the things. That, yes, that's what went on. So my father came to me one day and he said to me, the cop's going to die. He's, he's not going to make it. And so I called my good friend, Jimmy Arricchio, who, while I was in the hospital, brought my wife-to-be down, snuck her into the hospital. And she came and, 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 and she saw me in the hospital. And so I told him, you know, Jimmy, come on. Bring me some clothes. And he came down. I put my clothes on and I walked down the hall and I literally said goodbye to Phil Cardello. And I, I, I went out every morning, every morning, whether she stayed there all night, his wife, I don't know. Every morning she would come in and say to me, how are you, Randy? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and she would say, you, you know, Philly, that's what she called him. Uh, Philly used to talk about you all the time and so forth and so on. That's the same guy that I met before he was to become a cop. He used my name to become a cop and wound up working in the same precinct as me in the 28th precinct. So he died. And of course, they couldn't find me. So the guy that was in charge of that detail was a sergeant. His name was Ray Kelly. He would later on become the police commissioner. So Seedman got a hold of me. I went to the funeral. And of course, nobody, nobody from the mayor or the, or the police commissioner showed up at the funeral. They broke a, I don't know how many year tradition it was. I have no idea. But uh, at the funeral, uh, he said to me, Seedman said to me, you ever do that again, blah, blah, blah. We didn't know where the hell you were, what it was and everything. And don't forget, there still was the price on my head, the $50,000, this, that, and everything else. So he sent me back out to work on the uh, Black Liberation Army, which I did for a year. And during that time, what was happening with the Moss case, I have no idea. I have no idea. I gave statements. I did. I had no idea. And the talk that was in the police department that was going on over the case. I mean, first of all, the inspector from the 2-8 dropped his shield like high noon right after the uh, funeral. The chief of detectives, Seedman, within a couple, three weeks, quit over the case. 
Now, the DCPI, which is a very powerful, very powerful person, he's the Department of Public Information. He was a Daily News writer. He quit, and his name was Daily. He quit on Sunday. He quit the case. That's what was happening. The case was bleeding out. And what it really looked like is that the police department circled the wagons, but they were firing in instead of firing out. Guys were leaving. Guys were quitting. You couldn't get detectives that would stay on the case. But all of that was happening within that year. And who was directing now, that, that year, Randy? Who was directing and, that? At the top? Who was firing oh, in instead of firing out? Well, we all know the fish stinks from the head on the head on back. I mean, the cops, you know, they didn't take it upon themselves. Right. This, this is what was going on. Cops in the 28th precinct where I was, they, they came to work in dungarees, but they did have a shirt on and they brought their own weapons. Oh. They had shotguns. They had everything. That's the way that they were riding after that. That's that's what was going on there. So to a degree, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that the police commissioner and definitely some of the commanders of some of the precincts, they lost it. They, you couldn't tell them what to do. No, you couldn't tell them. Uh, who what was to do. pressuring them, Randy? Was there no, outside nobody, pressure on them? Nobody would dare. Nobody would dare go next to them. In fact, the PBA called that on April the fourteenth, a year later, they were going to go out on strike. Thirty thousand cops were going out. That's what this case did. Wow. They were going to go out on strike. So now what happens is that the guy who quit daily, he writes a book and it's called Target Blue. And they were scared about what was going to be said in Target Blue. And it it did say what whatever it had to say, but it didn't name names. It, was, it wasn't weak, but uh, I just can't explain it. Now, while we're in the hospital, I know I'm, I'm backing up a little bit. While we're in the hospital, the police commissioner and Ben Ward, Ben Ward would later be the first black police commissioner in the New York Times, right? They publicly apologized to Minister Louis Farrakhan for the behavior of the police because Minister Farrakhan said it was an invasion. Now, on a very low level in the UN, Yemen, I, I always mispronounce that name, they brought into the UN of the invasion of the cops into into the mosque. So it was in the UN. It was in very low. That case made it into the UN. So now when I, I'm basically finished with the Black Liberation Army, we've killed Twyman Myers. Uh, I went to uh, San Francisco. We bring back uh, Bottoms in Washington. They shot a sergeant out there, put him before the grand jury. San Francisco was willing to, you know, not to let, let them go because they shot a sergeant out there. But the, San Francisco knew that these guys were wanted in the killing of four cops. For, and for sure, we got them for the killing of two cops. So they let them go. That was Bottoms in Washington. And I brought back Bottoms. And Nick Cirillo, who was out there, got to be talking to the FBI. The FBI in New York City, it was almost like competition. They didn't know nothing, blah, 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 blah. So Nick Cirillo was able to convince the FBI out in San Francisco to make Herman Bell number one. Herman Bell took Twyman Myers's place as number one. New York City didn't want to do that. The FBI in New York City. So 
Herman Bell became number one, most wanted cop killer in the United States. And of course, Herman Bell is now out. Uh, Bottoms got out about two months ago. Washington died in, in, in prison. So where does that leave me? So that leaves me about March, April, April the 14th. It was going to be one year. So after the Twyman Myers shootout, I ran over and I identified that it was him, blah, blah, blah. And he got off a lot of shots. There was an inspector there that lost uh, part of his uh, part of his toe. There was an FBI agent that lost uh, two fingers uh, in, in the shootout with, with Twyman Myers. And he it went right up into the subway, right out in the street in the Bronx. It was like the OK Corral. So w- once that was over, you know, basically, I don't say that my job was over. I was going to have to testify and all of these and so forth. So I get a call to go down to uh, one, uh, one PP. Back then, we called it the Puzzle Palace. So I went down there and I have a meeting. I'm telling you the truth. I have a meeting and it takes place on the second floor in a bathroom, in a bathroom. And there's an inspector who I admire very much, a very, very good guy. It had to be him that convinced me to do this. So I met with him in the bathroom and we had a cop and the cop stood outside and he didn't let anybody in the bathroom. And he just, just sadly said, he said, look, Randy, you, you've got some friends upstairs. And I turned to him, I said, I seriously doubt it. He says, but you've got some friends up there. He says, they, they, they know the work that you have done here. They know the work that you have done. And they also know what the chief of detectives, Seidman, thought about you. He really thought, thought about you, although Seidman was no longer on the job. And I turned to him and I said, what's up? And he said, they want you to take the Moss case. And that's what they called it at the time. I said, the Moss case? And he said, yes, the Philip Cardillo case. We want, you to take, we want you to take the case. You're going to be the detective on the case. Now, it, it's, it's, not, it's not so hard to figure out that this happened in Harlem, that all the Harlem cops are crazed over this. They're all after the bosses who didn't allow a crime scene, who took the cops out of here, and who did that. And that's their, that's their beat. And th- the commanding officer of the 2-8 has quit. Nobody wants to be the commanding officer of the 2-8. So it's very, very simple to see that if you put Jurgensen, who's right from there, and is respected. I mean, you know, I respected the cops and so forth. No problem with that. So it's very, very easy to see, give me the case. You give me the case, it's it's highly improbable, if that's the word, that they're going to go out on strike, that they're going to do it. That, no, Jurgensen's on the case. And you judge, don't forget, I got hurt there that day and this, that, and everything else. So I said, uh, all right. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll take the case. I took the case and I met with an inspector who would become my nemesis. And I met with him and he gave me rules and regulations and you can't go to the mosque. Don't forget there was an alarm still out of the gun missing. Yeah. Uh, you know, supposedly the deal was made with Congressman Rangel. 
Minister Louis Farrakhan and Seidman that if they left the mosque, that the 14 people, sometimes it's 14, sometimes I, I hear it's 16, that they would then be brought over to the precinct. That's the deal that was made. So Seidman left. He made the cops take the handcuffs off the guys. A couple of them were almost like crying. They didn't want to do it. We're not going to do it. So it was hell to pay. And when they got out on the street, they ran for their lives. There was no cops there. The streets were on fire. There was no way. And they ran the whole block, including Seidman. He ran all the way. He would later say to me, while he was running down the block, that's when he was going to quit the job. He was going to quit the job right there. He stayed a couple of weeks after that. They used you to avoid the strike, and then they thwarted you at every turn. I worked with a group of detectives, right? If any one of them had the case, they weren't going to play ball. I mean, if, if these people thought that I was going to play ball, you're much, much mistaken. I dedicated myself for four years to catch a cop killer. That's what I did. And any one of the detectives that I worked with, they would have done the same thing. So although they think that they put out one fire, you know, I'm not going to say I created another one, but you bet your sweet ass I did. <laughs> I did. I, that was it. There came a point where the cops said to me, the PBA cops said to me, we thought you were on our side. And I said, I am on your side. Well, you know, this boss did that, this boss did that. And my answer was always back to them. You know what I found out? I said, that boss, and I never called them names. If anybody says that I called them bastard, and I did not. I said, that boss, I figured out, didn't shoot Cardillo. So I don't care. Yeah. And that's what I would say. But they were so hell-bent as a unit. And the PBA, Sam DeMilla, you know, they wanted the bosses to answer up what they did for the one simple reason, you know, they stopped us from conducting the investigation. Now I'm going to tell you something on the, on the, the six cops that were shot, uh, Piagentini and Jones, Curry and Benetti, Foster and Lord, Stewart and Plate. It, it took years, but we, we caught them all and we convicted them all and they all went to jail. Mm -hmm. Nobody went to jail over the Cardillo case. So you can see how different that case was and why the cops were hell-bent on getting getting the people that the bosses that removed them and this, that, and everything else. So I had a little bit of a go there for a while, you know, with, with the cops there, you know, because I had to interview every one of them, 96 of them, by the way, 96 cops over months that I did. And the inspector says, Here's how you have to do that. You got to submit a paper, and they, even though they're working, but because nobody was going to come in on their own time, they would have. But no, they had to be working because it was going to be official. I didn't submit any papers. You know what I did? I went to the commander where they were working, and they were in the radio car and everything. They put the radio car out of service. They put it out of service. The other radio cars picked up their jobs, and I interviewed them. Where were you? What did you see? So forth and so on. And I was able to reconstruct through friends in show business, as you call it, to reconstruct the mosque, a, a miniature, a miniature mosque, a portable miniature mosque. And they, they used it in the trial. You know, 
where where it was uh, maybe five yards in the room itself, you know, this was five inches. Where were you? Where did you go? So forth and so on. And I knew the cops that didn't get in there. I knew. So I, I made like three levels of these cops, the ones that were there, but were really there, but the ones that were first there and saw some what was going on and the ones that got inside. This this took me this took me a year, maybe more to do it. What I had to do was I had to prove I had to prove that this was not not a conspiracy, but a plan that the cops were going to invade the mosque because that Minister Louis Farrakhan was constantly out there, constantly in the papers, and nobody from the other side, which would be the commissioner or an inspector or anybody, nobody was saying different. Nobody was saying different. I learned that if a lie is told enough times, it'll be believed. I'm telling you, by the time I went to trial, it definitely was the New York City Police Department invaded mosque number seven. And I had to disprove that. And so the way that I did it, one of the things that I did, if you're if you're having a plan that you're going to invade the mosque and you have two Spanish cops that don't even know the, 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 the first two cops that went in there. Well, what kind of a plan is that? What, what kind yeah. of an invasion is that? They don't even know each other. You know what I'm saying? So I, I did disprove that. And once I disproved that, now I went after I went after the Muslims. And of course, that put me that put me in a lot of trouble. You can't go to the mosque, you can't do this, you can't interview them, you can't do the other thing. And of course, I found ways. I got an ice cream truck and then I made a radio car go down there and an ice cream truck in the winter, and the radio car went down there, blew the siren put the cherry lights on and they started to come out. When they started to come out, I started to take pictures. I took pictures. I didn't know who the, who they were. And that's when I found Joe Pistone, who I knew, which is Donnie Brasco. And I said, I needed help. So he took the pictures and just like you see in the movie, I would then meet him at a Brooklyn hotel after taking a subway to me. I wasn't followed. I went into the Brooklyn hotel and they had a safe room up in there. The FBI had a safe room up in there. They had radios and everything in the hotel. And so I went up into there and Joe would say to me, take a look. And I would look. And what I had to do was on a pad, I would copy everything down. And then in the sink, in the sink, in the, in the room, Joe and them would put some lighter fluid and they'd burn up what they took from the FBI, and I took it back on the subway all all the way back. That's how that's how I identified them. Wow! That's how I began to identify them. Wow. Because in the street where I had a lot of information, they were known as two X, five X, six X. Right. I get nowhere with that. I you know I I, I need a name. So that worked out rather well. The FBI off the record really, really helped me put the case together. So what I then did, since I couldn't go to the mosque, I figured out a way that I would bring them to me. And the way that I did that was I had a printer, you know, a roll-up printer. Don't forget, this is 1972. We still don't got radios. So 
and, and so I printed up a bunch of papers. I was going to go to the 78 precincts in the city of New York, and I was going to make sure that each precinct got this, and they put it up on their print board because it's the detectives who do the printing. And if you are printing a Muslim, call me. Call me. Well, when they found out that I did that, that was it. That, that was really it for me. No, you can't do this. You can't do the other thing. When I got to Brooklyn, I got to one of the precincts there, and there were two young cops, uh, you know, maybe 25, 26, 27 years of age, you know, and they were in there on an, on an arrest. They, they, they were in there. The both of them said, no, no, we'll do it. They had their own radio car. They took another radio car and they took off to all the precincts in Brooklyn and delivered this to the detectives up there. I hit a few of the precincts. They did it to all of that. They did that wow. on the, while in uniform for Cardillo. They did it for Cardillo. So I began to get calls. Oh, my God. I got calls. I had to go to Brooklyn. And as soon as I walked in, the guy was half in the bag, and I could see right away, absolutely not. So I did that for months. I did it for months. In the meantime, he's after me. The inspector is after me. He can't find me. He don't know the hours that I'm working. It would get worse. It would get worse. I, there was no way I could report to him. And I stopped putting down things on what we call the DD5. The DD5 is a follow-up to the initial case. It shows progress. It had names and stuff like that. I wouldn't do it. So on a couple of them, I put down interviewed five, you know, five Muslims by, by the name of 5X and so forth. No names, no names no, no whatsoever. So I don't know what the hell they were looking at, what, what, what they thought that that was progress. I mean, so the end of the story is, is that it's my father-in-law's birthday. And my father-in-law, we had gone to Little Italy a number of times, my wife, father, her mother. And he really liked the cannolis, the cannolis. <laughs> this is a cannoli story like the Godfather, but he liked the cannolis. So I went into the shop and I picked up the cannolis, six of them, eight of them or whatever it was. And so before I would always leave, I would call Vito Navarro, the absolute wrong person to put on the case to investigate his dead partner. What a joke that was. So wherever I went and I took him, I mean, so I call him up and I said, okay, I'm going. I never told the inspector, but Vito knew where I was at all. Don't forget, no cell phones, no nothing. You know, you had to drop a nickel and blah, blah, blah. So I called him up and I said, okay, I'm, I'm done for the day, Vito. And I'll, I'll, I'll call you. I'll leave a number. I'll leave a number. He says to me, wait. He says, we just got a call. And I think it was from the sixth precinct. And they got somebody over there. And I, I, I sort of said to myself, yeah, my God, you know, will it keep till tomorrow? Will this happen? But, and I said, all right. So I go by, right? I walked in upstairs. There was a detector. He, he was killing the typewriter. Big detector pounding away on the typewriter. And I said, 
you got somebody and he went like this, over there, over there. And there was a guy chained to the radiator. I got about five feet from the detective and I knew it was him. I knew it. I knew I had it. I knew I had it. So I, I talked to him for about three minutes. He's under arrest. I talked to him for about three minutes and I knew it. I, I, I asked him certain questions. I, I knew it right there. Now, I need to interrogate this guy. I really do. So we handcuff him. The guy's on the typewriter. I said, look, I'm going to borrow him. Go ahead. And I, I take him out. This guy's a prisoner. <laughs> I took him out. And we went downstairs. And I decided not to go to any precinct. Because as soon as they would hear that I walked in and they accused him of being the shooter later on. So I, so I knew I couldn't go there. So what I did, I went to the phone and I called the FBI on 69th Street. And with luck, Joe Pistone was working. And he was working with a guy by the name of Al Ginkinger, uh, the other FBI agent. And I said, Joe, I'm coming up. I said, I'm coming up. Yeah, okay, Randy, come on up. So we went in. And when I'm going in there, and I got this 26-year-old uh, clean. He's clean. He was doing a flim-flam. No drugs, no nothing. Uh, reading the Koran. Yeah. yeah. So when we walk in and you see this big on the floor circle, FBI with the bright colors and everything, and I'm walking in past there, that really played for me well. So we went upstairs. So I got up there and I get into the room and blah, blah, blah. And I'm talking. And I said to Joe, I said, uh, Joe, you, you know, could we get some coffee? Could, could, could we get something? And Joe said to me, hey, would you like some cannolis and, and the rest of it? How, how about some vino wine? <laughs> you want some of that? And I told him, I said, my car's downstairs. <laughs> I said, the cannolis, the cannolis are in the car. But they, they didn't go down and get the car. So here's a moment. Here's a moment I share with you. After I got him and I knew I had him, I went into the bathroom and I cried. I cried like a baby. I just cried. I, I couldn't stop myself from crying. I was trying to catch my breath and put cold water on me and, and so forth and so on. I, 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 I couldn't believe I had it. And what has stayed with me for some 40 years was I almost didn't go. I almost didn't go to pick him up. So um, when I came back outside, I called the district attorney's office, which they have a 24-hour number, and I told them to call John Van Lint, the district attorney, who was catching the Cardillo, catching the Cardillo case. And I said, have him give me a call at this number. And the cop called me back. The cop called me back and said, um, he's, he's coming into the office because that's what I had left the message. And so I, I took him down there. And you see, here's the first time. Now, there's always a cop sitting there right outside the DA's office by the elevator. You can't get up there unless you get past this cop because up there is all the DA's, all the offices. And of course, there's, there's the stairs, but the stairs is locked from the outside. So there's no way that you can get up in there. So when I walked in there, I walked in, I walked in with him. 
I said to, I said to the cop, I'm going to see Van Lint and stuff like that. And of course, he's going to call up Van Lint to see if Van Lint's in the office, blah, blah, blah. And he did that. And he's going to go up. And he said to me, just like this, Randy, is this the fuck that shot the cop? See? You see? Is this the fuck that shot the cop? See? So that's, that's what I had to try to avoid. You know, I can't go out and tell them that he's a witness and this and that and everything else. So I went upstairs to Van Lint's office and we sat him down. The stenographer was there. There was another witness with Van Lint and I stayed outside. So in other words, I was not intimidating him to say whatever he was going to say. And he spoke to Van Lint. I don't know, maybe 20 minutes or something like that. And Van Lint called me into the office and he went like this. Good work. Good work. He said, okay. He says, now run. And I said, what do you mean run? And he said, go. He said, you got to go. He reached in his wallet and he took out $40. He gave me $40. And I said, well, I'm going to go. And he said, I don't want to know where you're going. I don't want to know where you're going. Go. Just go. And so I went with him and I went to a hotel, which turned out to be, <laughs> they were doing a lot of female business with females walking in high heels in the room next to us in the room over there. But while we were in there, a few things came to light. And one of them was, he said, you're going to kill me. And I said, no. I said, I got the chair against the door. I had the shotgun and I was sitting across the room. I said, I'm worried. I said, I don't know who you called or who you spoke to. So I'm worried that I'm going to get killed. But I'm going to tell you right now, if they're coming to kill me, they're going to kill you too. And he said, I didn't call anybody. I didn't call anybody at all. And so I spent the night in that hotel. I would wind up spending the weekend there. And um, I called, I called Vito the next morning and Vito said, you know, the inspector said that you're fired. The inspector said that uh, you're no longer a detective. The inspect, I I forget what he was saying. And I said, look, Vito, I'm I'm fed up with him. I'm, I'm tired of him. Why? Because guess what? I never told them. I never told them him and them, that I had this guy. They learned it from the DA's office and they were furious. They were furious. And from then he dedicated himself to get me and he got me. What happened at the trial, the district attorney's opening speech to to the jurors said uh, who, who he was putting on trial today was the New York City Police Department. He put the New York City Police Department on trial. And by doing that, he showed what we couldn't do, what we couldn't do this, we couldn't do the other thing. But what we had in the end was one eyewitness. Could I sway him in that two years? Could I do whatever it was going to do? You know, so he had to dismantle all of that. And of course, at the time, it was five weeks, the longest trial, et cetera, so forth. And they came back. 10 to 2, hung, 10 to 2. And the breakdown was, it was 10 for conviction, one for not not guilty, and one person wouldn't vote 
as long as one person was holding out to be not guilty. And so it was a hung jury. And by the time we went the second time around, you know, he was found not guilty. He was found not guilty. So that's it. Why? We had no evidence. What, and, and, and the questions from the defense attorneys would, would be, why didn't you do that? What, why didn't you establish a crime scene? Why didn't you do this and stuff like that? You know, and the answers, the answers were coming out. The answers were coming out. Well, the sergeant told us we had to leave. That, they, they, these were the cops, not me. The cops were testifying. Yeah, well, the inspector said that was it. Now, you had the one cop, you had the one cop that testified, and, and he said, I had a prisoner, and they objected. He was no prisoner, but I had a prisoner handcuffed downstairs. They told me to unhandcuff. Who told you to handcuff the precinct? Well, the chief of detectives told me to handcuff the precinct. So it's the police department. It wasn't really like the Muslims. You see what was happening? Randy, was there one person behind this or was it a group of people? It was, it was the perfect wave in that it could never happen again. It oh. could never happen again. I'll say it again. It could never happen again. Now, it, it, it could not. Why couldn't it happen again? I mean, a phony call, a phony call. The, the Muslims that were in were, were in the mosque, they didn't know. They they were told the, the cops were invading the mosque. That's yeah. what they were told. And I grilled them. I spoke to every one of them. I locked up Mitchell Sansan for, you know, locking the doors and carrying the gun away, and which he threw in the river. Absolutely. They didn't know what was going on. So if it was a plan, it was a well-kept plan. None of the cops knew. Half the cops that went there, they went on an address, 102 West 116th Street, including Randy Jurgensen. I didn't know it was the mosque. I didn't know it was the mosque until I got there. Wow. So, Randy, listen, uh, just phenomenal. I, I, I got to ask you, and, and we talk about this all the time, uh, why is this not a Netflix five-parter or motion picture? Or Because you, you've been involved with French Connection. You've been involved with... I think you're involved with the seven ups. I think this is a better story than those combined. Um, I, I, I think something's going to happen. I hope so. That's good. I, I, I think something's going to happen. You know, the atmosphere through the seventies and stuff like that, and the riots and it, it, it really wasn't going to happen. The bottom line is this, the story is, the story is a New York City detective working with a, a black Muslim by the name of Foster 2X Thomas broke the mosque case. That's, that's who broke the mosque case. The white detective and the black Muslim. And we have tried to do that. Finally, now they're beginning to see that. But what they want to do is in today's atmosphere, you know, they want to try to tell the story in today's atmosphere of really what's going on. And I don't think that you can apply 2021, what is happening in 2021, to what happened in 1972. The 2021 thinking to apply it to uh, 1972. Well, did, did the cops, did the cops really force their way in? Did they really do yeah. this? 
being a cop, I was in charge of 8,000 cops. It's one, it's not, it's probably the best story I've ever heard, Randy. With everything I know, this is the one that's always stuck out with me. Well, you know, anything that I've said here, I will stand behind with paperwork, with facts. No, it's incredible. Uh, absolutely. Incredible. I, I, I will. So listen, uh, I'd like to do this again. But we'd love to talk to you about the Hollywood stuff and all that stuff yeah. you did there. We'd love to have you that's back what on. I, that, that's what I thought we were going to do. No, well, this is so riveting. This, this, I couldn't stop you. I was just, this, it was just fantastic. I mean, it's like six is so riveting. It is so riveting. And your dedication to those four or five years. You should be on, very honored. And uh, listen, I'm exhausted. I, I just listened to you. I feel and I'm exhausted my, my right now. pounding. Okay. So. Listen, it was just phenomenal, but we want to have you back on to talk about the uh, the war stories behind the camera. And because we've sat with you before and talked about it, and it's, that alone is incredible too. We'll love to have you back on at some point uh, sooner or now, later and talk about everything else. I thank you very much. I, I, I hope I haven't talked you to death. No, no but uh, God, it's, uh, just, it's gold. And it's gold. On the next one. Can we talk about something else, guys? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. 100%. <laughs> you, you yeah. listen, we sat back. So we take a break half hour in. So, now, let me leave you with this. Uh, after the two trials, right? Yep. Uh, I went on trial for a grocery store list. They made me a deal. If I would leave the job right away, they never said it to me like this. We won't perp walk you, but they, they were going to fingerprint me. And so I took the deal and to 11 counts of disobedience, uh, moving moving the files out of the office and setting up my own private office that was police department property and so yep. forth. Yep. So I pleaded nola contender to, uh, to uh, 11 counts and I had to leave the job immediately. And in leaving the job, I was 19 days short of 20 years and they wouldn't give it to me. Wow. So... Uh, it didn't affect my pay, but yeah, I went out 19 days short of having 20 years. Wow. Otherwise, wow. if I was going to fight it, I was going to be printed and so forth and so on. So, yep, that's but, uh, it. My friend, thank you so much. Phenomenal. And uh, we're going we're gonna to do this again. Talk about all the other stuff and have some laughs. Thanks, thank Randy. You. Thanks, guys. Excellent. Good night, guys. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.